Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report. We are joined today by Paul Holmes. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Was I the only guest you could afford? Um, yes. Frankly, uh, but as we're going to be talking about the post-truth era, I should say that, as you know, we have a huge, huge guest podcast budget. Uh, it's never been bigger, despite what the polls might say. Um, and on that note, let's talk about public relations in the post-truth era. Uh, it's a, it's an idea that I think has become particularly relevant this summer it's it's always been around this idea um that people don't necessarily listen to factual arguments um but what we've seen this summer i guess is two successful political campaigns um brexit being the first one and then secondly uh donald trump's ongoing presidential campaign um we're calling that successful, are we? Well, it has been successful in insofar as he knocked out, I think, 16 other challengers for the Republican nomination, many of whom were considered um, far more qualified um, and uh, more acceptable to voters and, and, and much more likely to win the general election. Um, so at least that far, it's, you know, you would say it's successful. Certainly the last few weeks have, have resembled more of a car crash, and that's something we, we should definitely talk about. Um, but I think at least the early stages of, of Donald Trump's campaign, and of course the, uh, the Brexit referendum, uh, have, have brought home to us this notion that, um, well, to put it bluntly, people no longer seem to value truth. They are perfectly happy to accept distortion, deception, and indeed lies if they chime with their existing attitude. Uh, and there is, of course, a behavioral element to this. We see plenty of research that shows people do not change their views simply because they are presented with facts to the contrary. Um, and there are numerous examples of this. I mean, people still think supply-side economics works. Um, so before we get to the public relations implications, let's talk about this for a second. How did we get here, particularly as we're supposed to be living in this so-called information age? Okay, so I think, I think I should start by offering a couple of caveats on the whole topic. Um, the first is that I honestly don't believe there's anything particularly new about this phenomenon. Um, I don't, I, I think, you know, historically we've had different ways of describing it. And I'll get on to one of my problems with the, the idea of post-truth in a, in a second. Um, but the reality is that people have always found ways um, to make policy preferences fit their values rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing here is um, people whose values, um, you know, whether, whether they are 
um, you know, it, it supply side economics is a wonderful economic policy if you believe that, you know, the poor deserve to be poor and the rich deserve to be rich and that that should go on forever. Mm. Um, you know, uh, um, believing that there's no climate change is a wonderfully convenient belief if you think that government regulation is by definition an evil thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if, if you can make your policy agenda fit to your values, you'll do it. And I think that's always, I think that's always been the case. Mm. Secondly, I find, I think we need to draw a different, uh, a different differentiation here between truth mm -hmm. um, and facts. Okay. So truth can be a very abstract concept to Christians. You know, the the whole story of the Bible and indeed the existence of God is a truth. It is, to a certain extent, the greatest truth for many of them. Mm. Um, for, um, for people like me, it's a fantastic fairy tale, beautifully told, but, you know, of zero relevance to the real world in the 21st century. And not um, true. You know, does that make me post-truth? Does that make them post-truth? I think when, when you start talking about truth in that context, mm -hmm. um, you, you can go a little off, off the rails, and I'd rather focus on facts and non-facts. And mm. thirdly, I worry that this idea of a post-truth society is not one of those ideas... Um, designed by elites to um, disenfranchise or devalue the opinions of ordinary people. Um, I think that um, I think that it is being used. Um, the term is being used in an elitist way, and a way that is probably ultimately self-defeating. When you consider that a lot of this post-truthism that we see out there mm. is really a rejection of authority, a rejection of opinion elites. Right. Um, and you know, we might want to get into the the, the sometimes very valid reasons that those right. people are being rejected. Well, it, so it's a rejection of our truth. Yes. As opposed to the truth. But, ha but, but looking at facts then, specifically, what's your take on this notion that there was a time when, as I, I was reading an article earlier today, I think it was the executive editor of the Washington Post who said, um, you know, there was a time when we were different on, on, on prescriptions for our problems, but fundamentally we agreed on the facts. That was then. Today, many feel entitled to their own facts. So again, you know, every every election um, we get this. This is the first election where we've ever had this kind of, you know, disagreement about that. You know, uh, people have very short memories. This has been going on for a long time. I, I, I read somewhere that this was the first time um, that a that a candidate for the American president had suggested that the election would be rigged and that the results would not be legitimate. Mm. Well, actually, that's not true. John McCain, how many years ago was it? Uh, Twelve years ago? Eight, I think. Um, yes, okay. So eight years ago, gave, gave speeches throughout the South in which he suggested that um, voter fraud was rampant, um, mm -hmm. particularly in African-American communities, and that that would help Obama. I mean, you know, the 
this stuff is, is, is actually much more commonplace than the outrage machine pretends that it is. Mm. Okay. Um, having said that, you know, there, there, there are clearly um, sort of a, a egregious abuses of, of, um, of fact, right? So mm -hmm. um, you're seeing, it, it, just to cite the American election for a moment, um, one of the chronic problems in America is the denial of climate change. It seems to me that the factual evidence um, for climate change is overwhelming and that it takes a an incredible amount of mental contortion um, to believe that it's a fiction um, and, and that it's not real. Um, or you have a more sort of acute example, um, whether it's Donald Trump's claim to have seen thousands of Muslims celebrating 9-11, uh, something that there is absolutely no evidence for whatsoever. Mm. Um, if he saw it, he saw it in his own mind. Um, or, you know, his claim that President Obama founded ISIS, an organization that existed at least a decade before he took office. Um, you know, the, the, these things are, are clearly factually untrue. But again, you know, politicians lie. This is not. Mm. But do you see that these kind of campaigns that are built on, on such a foundation of untruths are becoming more successful than perhaps they once were? I think that people who hold fringe beliefs, um, beliefs mm. that are um, unsupported by the facts, mm. can find more support for those beliefs than ever before. Um, and clearly, you know, the internet and social media have allowed people to weave much more elaborate sort of self-contained theories of, of, you know, particularly sort of conspiracy-oriented theories mm. um, that if, if you ignore what's happening in the mainstream media, if you ignore alternate sources of information, can become quite convincing. I mean, you, you can see what's going on right now with this sort of bizarre campaign about Hillary's health. Yeah. Uh, you know, a photograph of her shaking her head vigorously in response to a question becomes, you know, oh God, here's a video of Hillary having a seizure. Um, or, you know, her, her slipping on an icy step is, oh, Hillary Clinton can't even walk by us. I mean, mm. you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, Gerald Ford tripped over a few times. I don't think anybody ever sort of suggested, maybe they did because I'm not old enough to remember all of it, but ever suggested that this was an indication, um, that he was physically and mentally unfit to be president. It was an indication that he was kind of a klutz, but, mm. you know, so and you can now you can now find this universe online of you know thirty or forty self referential sites mm. that you know if they're all you visit if all you do is go to Reddit and Breitbart and watch Fox News yeah. this stuff becomes self reinforcing and if you don't watch you know something more mainstream um, mm. actually it becomes your reality. Yeah, and well, I mean, I think surely it's new that we have a situation where one of those sites is in, is actually running, playing an influential role in the campaign. Um, 
in the case of Breitbart. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Fox has been a de facto... Yeah, well, Roger Ailes has, has, has been heavily yes. involved in campaigns for a long time. But uh, a few things that are, very, that are very interesting I think we should get into. that You mentioned the impact of digital media, the fragmentation um, that's underway, that people go to sites that that um, they agree with, they find their views reinforced. They're rarely presented with opposing views because of the way the algorithms work on Facebook and Google. Um, so in effect, the, the internet becomes an echo chamber rather than uh, something that improves information and transparency, which is, I guess, the converse of what was expected to happen. Yes, I think that's probably true. I, I, I would suggest that... Um, the failure of what I guess we call mainstream media to mm. adapt to the digital and social age um, has created something of a gap. Um, I'm not sure that the rise of, um, you know, the, the Breitbart's on the left, I'm, I'm, I, I hesitate to pretend that there's an equivalency here. <laughs> um, but because I because I think that there's something qualitatively different about Breitbart yes. than there is about, say, Huffington Post. No, I agree. Is, I agree. Which is a liberal yeah. analog to that. Um, but you know, at least has some basic regard for the truth. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure what the analog is on the left, or, or if there is one. Well, something so, like the Canary in the UK, perhaps. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I, I am, but mm. but that is, I mean, that's not nearly as influential, it seems to me, as Breitbart. No. Um, but but anyway, I, I you know I think I think that that there has been a gap for those kind of sites to step into. Um, I'd say a couple of things. First of all. First of all, there is an appetite for that kind of extreme reinforcement mm. um, among the most partisan and the most politically engaged. Um, I suspect that their influence is disproportionate because they account for, you know, 99 out of 100 clicks on all of these sites. You know, my suspicion is that the the mythical sort of moderate independent voter in the U.S. is not spending a lot of time on either Breitbart or Huffington Post or or indeed Politico. Mm. Um, you know, they're still, you know, tuning in after Labor Day to one of the three networks and whatever their you know whatever their dominant local newspaper is, whether it's the uh, the you know Chicago Tribune or the New Orleans whatever it is right mm. they're, they're, they have still their their own trusted sources of media mm. um, but because because Breitbart and Politico and HuffPost um, are read by insiders and people who are politically engaged mm -hmm. um, they tend to have a disproportionate volume uh, or loudness. Mm. Um, that that's probably out of out of proportion with the number of people who actually read them, um, but but at the same time, you know, I I think they're more they they've done a much better job of crafting stories, um, and this is this is a topic that I think is is vital to a discussion of you know this post truth environment. 
um, they, they, they have been much more successful at crafting a narrative that fits the worldview of their readers. Mm. Right. We'll get to the narrative in a second. Um, one of the things you mentioned, which I think is really important here, and in fact you wrote a piece about it after the Brexit vote, um, is that it's not necessarily truth that's being rejected, but it's a version of the truth that's being rejected. And in particular, it's a version of the truth, as you said, that is perhaps favored by elites. Um, how much of an impact are we seeing from the, the kind of erosion of trust in institutions? Uh, and how justified is that? I mean, we see the numbers from the Edelman Trust Barometer, and every year brings more and more corporate scandals, which seem designed to enrich the elite uh, at the expense of, of the 99%. Uh, how do these factors play into all of this? So, I mean, I, to me, this is, the, the link is, is both clear and, um, and, and probably the dominant force at oh. play, certainly in the Brexit vote. Um, I, I'd argue, you know, it's one of several factors in the U.S. that led to Trump's rise. But, you know, there, there has been, uh, there is a, a cynicism on both, both sides of the debate. Um, there has been profoundly cynical behavior um, by elites, both politicians and bankers and business leaders um, in the developed world, whether it, you know, whether it's um, the, the, the banks during the global financial crisis, whether it's Volkswagen, whether it's, you know, any, any of the companies that we've written about in um, our sort of 10 or 12 biggest crises of the year for the last three or four years. Nearly all of the biggest crises involve some profoundly cynical behavior by organizations. And that, not surprisingly, um, breeds cynicism on the part of ordinary people who have come to believe that the system is rigged, that they see, you know, misbehavior of the most extraordinary kind by business leaders um, and politicians, um, for which they are very rarely held to account. Uh, nobody went to jail over the global economic crisis. Um, hmm. and, uh, and in fact, most people who were primarily responsible for that crisis walked away with massive amounts of severance pay and, and you know, no, no real stigma attached to their name. Um, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe anybody has been pub punished yet for the Volkswagen crisis a year or so ago. Um, I'd be surprised if anybody ended up going to jail over that. I, that. That, to ordinary people, must seem absolutely ridiculous. And so you begin to feel like, um, you know, the, the, the authorities, the people who are... And, and, and by the way, at the same time, you're being told, well, okay, you know, now we have to have austerity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, austerity is not going to impact the very rich. It's going to impact you. It's going to impact your wallet. It's going to impact your prospects of getting a job. Um, you're going to have to. You're going to have to pay the penalty um, for the misbehavior of a few elite bankers. Well, 
you know, how does that not breed cynicism? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there were people who, voting for Brexit, thought that they were voting, because bankers were almost universally in favor of staying in the EU, mm. there were people who thought, well, you know, if we get out, at least it'll be a slap in the face to the bankers. Um, I think they'll be okay. Yes, I yes. Look, whenever there has never there has never been a there's never been a recession in the history of the world that made the bankers suffer more than it made workers suffer. Mm. Um, I don't think that the recession triggered by Brexit will be the first. So right. yes, I, you know, ordinary people are going to suffer much more than elites do. Um, but there is now you know there's now an assumption that if. Um, you know, if, if financial leaders, if political leaders, if business leaders say something is true, it must almost by definition be false. And if it's good for them, it must almost by definition be bad for the rest of us. Mm. And, and while, you know, while I think that's ultimately a very destructive mindset to get into, I can certainly understand where it comes from, given, you know, given the behavior and the lack of accountability for that behavior. Mm. So that has big implications for public relations people and communicators. Um, and the other thing we've seen here is that that kind of energy, I guess, is, is being harnessed by some of these campaigns. I mean, most, maybe most explicitly um, by Michael Gove, one of the leaders of the Brexit campaign, who when challenged about um, views on Brexit and, and views in particular of the economic authorities, uh, didn't bother to, to, to challenge the actual uh, arguments, but just simply said, I think the public is fed up with hearing from experts. Uh, so what does that mean for um, organizations, corporates that are trying to, to make their, their views known and that are fighting arguments every day? Well, look, first of all, I think, I think it means that Michael Gove understands the public mood. Yeah. Uh, and I hate to say this. That's much really, yeah, that's so depressing. Much better than the majority of his opponents did. I mean, I you know I've I've, I've said this before. I think, but you know, I, I don't think that the Remain side of the debate was able to craft any kind of coherent narrative about why EU membership was beneficial to ordinary British people. I don't think they even tried. Right? I think there was an attempt to sort of scare people about what might happen if we changed our position. Um, but there was, there was, I was completely unaware of any kind of um, compelling, coherent narrative that said this is why this mm. is good for you. And even if they had one, you know, they were compromised by their messengers to an extent. That's true. I mean, putting what... up... Uh, I can't remember who exactly who it was. It was one of the CEOs of the big corporations. Was was kind of the, one of the leaders of the Brexit campaign, and probably not a particularly trusted figure. Yes. Yeah. I yes. I mean, I, it was business leaders and um, and and sort of the ultimate establishment politicians on right. both sides of the aisle. Mm. But um, to to your question of what this what this means for corporate executives and corporate communicators, like I think it's. I think it's, it's clear that what it means is that if we continue to behave and to allow the kind of behavior that we've seen for the last 10, 15, 20 years, this, this chronic problem will get worse and worse. Mm. Um, but 
I also, you know, my, my experience with business suggests that business is, is much more responsive to acute than chronic problems. Mm. It's much more um, it's it's much more responsive to sort of putting out a fire and solving an immediate problem than it is to changing a long term behavioral pattern that is ultimately destructive. And it's also, I think, very difficult for an organization to unilaterally change. If if there is a game being played, which is the way many people treat business. And if the unwritten rules of the game say that you can get away with certain kinds of behavior, um, if you're not trying to get away with that kind of behavior, you put yourself at a disadvantage compared to people who are. Yeah, and businesses behave according to how they're incentivized. Yes. So it, it actually seems to me that, um, you know, while business has been lobbying for self-regulation and self-policing and... Uh, you know, generally the ability to set its own. We mm. we need a we need an entirely different regulatory regime mm. than we have right now to force everybody to behave better. Mm. And um, or we need public relations people who will actually certainly uh, the ones within yeah. these organisations will actually have the courage to try and and get businesses to make better decisions, behave yes, I mean, better. I, you know, I I think, but I think. I think if you have, you know, if you have the the financial guy in the room saying, well, if we do this, it'll make, you know, it'll cost us so more, it'll it'll save us money or it'll cost us less, whatever the the the, the argument is there, mm. and you have the legal guy saying, well, strictly speaking, it's not illegal, and then you have the PR guy saying, but it'll damage your relationships and your reputation, and you know, I I honestly don't think that that's an argument that the public relations guy or the public relations woman um, wins nine times out of ten. Mm, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 actually, I actually, I don't know if I'm being naive here about the, the business that we're in, mm. but I actually think public relations people, many of them, do try to make that argument. Well, of course. I mean, that's really the only argument they can make. Right. I mean, well, I suppose and they, they could and agree. I suspect that you know. I suspect that I suspect that they do it, you know, um, futilely mm. in 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 a lot of cases. Um, and I think they're also acutely aware that if they do it too often, um, they just won't be included in the discussion anymore. Mm. Um, if they if if they make that case every time a problem comes up, um, they'll just begin to sound annoying and disconnected from reality yeah. um, but but you know I think I think that that I, I don't think that the answer to this is um, spinning the existing position better I don't <laughs> think it's making a more convincing case that business should be allowed to behave this way right well, this is what I wanted to ask you because I'll bring in a, a post here from David Brain from Edelman um, who wrote about this earlier this month and he was talking about a book he co-wrote in 2008 uh, and he said, one assumption that drove us and many other writers and thinkers of that time was that eventually facts honestly presented and openly debated would by and large win the day. And it seems that certainly David and I would 
agree with him, um, thinks that we're now in an era where facts are not necessarily clearly winning the day. Um, so does that mean that PR practitioners would be perhaps well served by reviving the era of spin, which we have been told again and again is, is dead? Um, so I, um, I'm not sure if this, okay, I'm not sure if this qualifies as spin, right? Mm. Because I, I'm not sure what our, where we draw the line here. But mm. I, think that, I think the facts do not themselves to the extent that some of us would like to believe. Um, and in fact, I was I was giving a presentation to a, a network of sort of independent public affairs firms mm -hmm. a little while ago, and suggested that we had to get better at weaving facts into stories. Mm -hmm. I may have phrased it somewhat less elegantly than that, uh, but basically saying that you know when when presented with when presented with a set of facts on the one hand and a story that makes sense to them on the other hand people will nearly always choose the story or, or people are more likely to be influenced by the story. Right. Um, it's I, advertising versus PR in, in one respect. Um, it, to a certain extent, perhaps. I mean, you know, the storytelling, storytelling, I think, is, is very naturally a part of, of advertising. But, you know, you can, you can do both. Yeah. You, you know, you can present people with an ad that says, um, you know, five million children are starving in wherever there's a horrible famine going on right now, um, send money. Or you can say, this little boy's name is Isaac and, you know, if he doesn't get, um, yeah. if he doesn't get help in the next year, the chances are that he'll be dead. And, I, you know, and telling that story about one little boy is much more powerful than presenting people with a set of numbers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the anti... Healthcare ads in the U.S. I think are a great example of this. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, they, they personalize the issue in a way that all the stats about how many people lack health insurance could never do. Right. I mean, you know, you can you can make the case that that you know the majority of people who take welfare in the United States, for example, um, do so for a very short period of time. It's a bridge that helps them get back into the workforce. Um, but then you know, and this shows that we. You know, we've been doing this for a long time. Ronald Reagan can run an ad about a welfare queen um, that, you know, tells the story of one woman mm. ripping off the system um, in a fairly egregious way. Mm -hmm. And that, that woman becomes, you know, the symbol for the entire debate. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact is that those, you know, stories about real people are, are powerful. Um, and facts are not powerful in the same way. That's just not how our brains are, are wired. Um, we need to understand the neuroscience of this better. You know, Chris Graves in his role at Ogilvy and his role at, at the PR Council has been advocating for this for five to six years. Mm. Um, there, are other, there are other people who've made the case strongly as well. But, you know, we need to understand how the brain reacts differently to stories 
and um, and to, to facts and and it's clear that it does right. um, and what stories resonate and why and does you know does humor work to change behavior or do you need to make people fearful or does it work differently for men and women does it work differently for generations I mean these are things we need to understand better in order to do our jobs better now what I do want to say is that I don't think that I don't think that there is um, that that just because you're telling stories, um, you you are descending into spin. Right, because I, 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 there are there are there are true there are true stories. There are fact-based stories. There, you know, as long as your stories are true, I don't think there's a problem. I, mean, I got some. Pushback, not not at all surprisingly, from the German representative at this meeting <laughs> that I was attending. Oh, the German people would never accept. Yeah, I had a similar uh, experience with an Austrian guy Something at a conference that isn't fact based. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you look at the way that immigration is being debated in Germany, there are clearly a large number of people who are accepting something other than a fact-based argument there. Right. Um, I, you know, I, the, the reality is that, um, you know, different stories may, may resonate differently with different markets and with different demographics and with different nationalities. And, um, but every, everybody responds to stories. This is... Mm -hmm. You know, this is what we as a, you know, both both as individuals and as a species, stories are what have resonated with us and passed along knowledge for, for all of history. Yeah. It's not news. I just wonder, though, if there is a risk, um, because we're moving towards um, an era where we're seeing more real-time content, for example. It's more visual um, it's less contextual. Um, people people seem happier, or at least are, are being encouraged to make more snap judgments um, rather than good judgments. And you end up, frankly, with a situation where a campaign that you are very familiar with, the Cannes PR Lions Grand Prix winner, <laughs> uh, which is a great story, but uh, not necessarily based... Uh, in fact, um, is deemed a great public relations campaign. Now, notwithstanding the you know the, the kind of ins and outs of how that kind of campaign can come to win, I suspect many people around the world would have looked at it and maybe not even blinked, and, and maybe just have thought, well, that's you know that's a great story and it worked. I don't want to disparage the can judges, mm. uh, but in all honesty, how anybody how anybody with a barely functioning bullshit detector could look at that campaign and not sniff something awry is a mystery to me. Um, and we are, you know, we are told constantly that one thing that the digital social multimedia age has done is help people develop much better bullshit detectors. Right. But does um, it? Has it? People ought to be able to tell when they're being lied to. Mm. And there were so many red flags in that 60-second video um, that, I, I mean, look, I don't want to relitigate the, <laughs> the gold lion winner. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, pretty sure. Um, suffice, it, suffice it to say yeah. that, you know, it did, I, I, I glanced at it immediately. Yeah. 
Right. Something. Okay, you did, and and perhaps the judges should have. But yeah, there is I, a risk, I, I think. I'm nobody's idea of a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm nobody's idea of a, a, a of, of an expert in any of this stuff, um, except that I'm an expert in when I'm being bullshitted because I'm a journalist, and that's that's sort of the skill that you develop, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but honestly, you know. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to malign the profession that we're, we're, we're writing about here. Uh, but if you're on the other, that, that's side, never stopped you before. No, uh, if you're on the other side, if you're a professional bullshitter, you ought to be able to spot, spot so, it. So, as David Brain puts it in his post, and he's put it a little more politely, um, the risk for the PR, <laughs> yeah, the risk for the PR industry in all this is that we fall back to being purely advocates rather than facilitating understanding. So, how big a risk do you think that is? I think David is somewhat optimistic if he thinks that I mean, falling back into that implies that we have somehow managed to escape it. Um, uh, that you know that that may be true for David, um, but it's not true of the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, we are still um, we are still guilty of that um, far more often than than we should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, I, I, I think, see, I'd, I'd like to think that the answer to this is greater integrity and mm. greater honesty and greater credibility. Um, I mean, that, it's but, not something but, that's going to hold. Sort of understand that that sounds to a lot of people like univer- unilateral disarmament. Right. Right. If the other side is lying, if the other side is bullshitting, if the other side is... Yeah. Um, is is pulling all these tricks and getting away with it, which for the most part, you know, whether we're talking corporate or um, or, or or business uh, or politics, let's face it, even NGOs mm-hmm. are not are, are not immune to this. I don't know why I said even NGOs. In many cases, they are the worst perpetrators of this. Um, but if the other side can get away with it. Um, you know, we'd be foolish to um, not to use the same techniques ourselves. Um, hmm. And and you know, I'm so I'm not sure what the answer is, except that that you know we ought to be less willing um, as a society and as an industry to let people get away with it. Well, you talked about regulation for corporate behavior. Um, if we're if 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 the prevailing mentality is that the ends justifies the means. Uh, do the means, in this case, the communication, need to be regulated? Ah. Okay, so you know that I am almost a fundamentalist when it comes to the First Amendment. Um, you know, I am profoundly uncomfortable with any regulation of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I agree. So am I. At, at all. Mm. Um, I, you know, my, my answer would be the, the you know, the, the best answer to more lies is more truth. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not to make lying, um, and that's not really what we're talking about here, because in, in most cases people can defend what they're saying as an interpretation of the facts. or Right you know, um, a, a healthy skepticism about the facts or, you know, I mean, I, 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 would, I would suggest that the majority of people who claim that they don't believe in, cli- the, don't believe the climate research that they, um, that they read have an ulterior motive for not believing it, but, 
you know, at the same time, I don't think you can say those people aren't entitled to express their view or to, and I think, I think the potential of, the potential of silencing or regulating that speech is far worse than the, than the, um, than, than, than the consequences of allowing it. Um, we just have to get better at fact checking, at calling out untruths, um, and and honestly, you only have the moral authority to do that if you are credible and trustworthy and honest yourself. Mm. Um, and but but again, that that may you know there there may be a short term penalty. To be gained for the long term, to be paid for the long term benefit of being right. Well, that's okay. The public relations industry has always thought in terms of long term benefit. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I, this, you know, there there was a time when I believed what you know what David believed, um, you know, ten years ago, um, which is that you know, honesty would be its own reward. And I still sort of believe that, but I, but I think that the payoff is rarely immediate. Mm. I mean, I should qualify my last statement. Where, you know, the, the short-term reporting cycles of holding groups do not necessarily encourage a long-term view. Um, but we'll end on an encouraging note, oh, perhaps. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm beginning to depress myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a post from uh, John Favreau, uh, who, of course, was the uh, President Obama's speechwriter. Not the director. Of no. In fact, his Twitter bio says the other one. Uh, and at this point, I think he may even be better known than the other one uh, because he was President Obama's speechwriter uh, at, at the age of 18 or something ridiculous like that. He um, wrote a post about Trump's um, cratering I think is how it's been described, Trump's campaign. Um, and he made a very persuasive argument, actually, that uh, whilst a lot of people are saying that nothing matters, the polling doesn't matter, facts don't matter, the fact that Trump's campaign is actually doing quite badly uh, shows that things do matter and, and perhaps indicate there is a limit to this post-truth narrative. Um, I still believe, God this is going to come back to haunt me at some point. I still believe that Trump is um, headed for a historically embarrassing defeat mm. um, in an entirely unrigged election. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that's going to come back to haunt you, the statement about the election being unrigged? No, no. <laughs> I, 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 I'm still a little bit worried that the... It, it, it's sort of like saying, you know... I, I don't. I, I think there's a sort of one in fifty chance of there being an apocalypse tomorrow. Right. Um, mm. You know that sounds like a fairly remote chance, but the consequences if it happens are so severe that yeah, you, know, you worry about it even so. So I think there's about a one in fifty chance of Trump winning the election. Mm. Uh, but so maybe facts do matter. But yes, and look, I, and and I think look, I do think that there's something there's a case to be made that Trump's disregard for the truth or for the facts mm. mattered less in a Republican primary mm-hmm. where, you know, he was, he was really in that regard first among equals. You know, the, the, I, I don't know if there was a, I don't know if there was a candidate in there that embraced mm. the, the truth. So, um, you know, I, 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 that was less of a differentiating factor in the Republican primary. Um, and I also think that there's a case to be made that 
if he was running against a candidate who had a better overall trust rating than um, Hillary Clinton, um, you would see him being absolutely obliterated right now rather than merely um, severely badly beaten. Um, mm. You know, so I, I'd like to believe that my point about credibility is true, that if he was running against a genuinely likable, credible candidate, um, you know, a sort of generic Democrat, um, that he would, he, he, his, his numbers would be even worse. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I do think, I do think there's, I, I, I do think there's an argument that this stuff, I do think there's an argument, first of all, that it, it will get you so far and no further mm -hmm. that eventually you'll be discovered mm. um, and unmasked and, and that the majority of people will see you for what you are. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think, I think this, this approach is essentially transactional. Mm. And, yeah, you can get people to do, do what it is you want them to do one time, maybe, um, or you can get them to... Uh, you, you know, you can get them to go along with you for a short period of time, um, but no longer. And I, I think that we've, I think we've sort of seen the, 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 the Trump phenomenon um, burn itself out. Um, I think, you know, in the in the week, days and weeks after Brexit, I think you saw the Brexit phenomenon <laughs> burn itself out. I yeah, mean, I with, think, with spectacular yeah, almost, effect. Yeah, almost immediately um, after. Uh, the the Brexit vote, there was a significant expression of buyer's remorse. I'm not sure how much that's been borne out by the uh, polling since mm. then. Um, but certainly, you know, some of the arguments that sounded so appealing in the run-up to the vote um, suddenly were much less compelling and were in many cases exposed as being entirely fraudulent. Mm -hmm. immediately after the vote. So I do think, you know, there's a there's a limited shelf life to to dishonesty as a as a technique in either business or marketing. Uh, it matters less in politics because once you've got people to to go into the booth and write their X wherever they write their X. Mm. Um <coughs> uh, you you've won and you know, if you're discovered 2 days later it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right. Um, in business, obviously, business is much more relationship-based. It's much less transactional. Um, you need your good name going forward, and and we shouldn't, you know, we should be, we should be wary of the idea that you know political communications follows the same rules as business communication. Yeah, it's a great point. Okay, well, thank you very much, Paul. This was fun. Um, uh, okay, it's an uncomfortable topic because I don't think the answer is at all easy no and the right thing um and the most immediately profitable thing may not be the same yeah i totally agree with you and uh but you know it's the kind of thing that that requires discussion and requires perhaps a certain amount of introspection on the part of communicators and marketers everywhere so thank you again uh, we'll be back soon um Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Echo Chamber. If you like the show, please do rate us on iTunes. You can get in touch with us uh, on our website, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. We'll be back soon. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 